what Keep Kids Alive is all about. It's all about preserving relationships. So as I look through those photographs in the newspaper article, that's where I really discovered the story of my sister Janie's death and the five other family members. I didn't feel like it was a family secret. I didn't feel like it was something that people were keeping from me. I just felt like it was something that wasn't talked about. It's just an interesting dynamic of how do we interact with other people about family tragedies or family histories. They have to have a level of readiness and willingness and vulnerability to be able to talk about the experiences in their life. One of the greatest inheritances we have is our family story. We are given that, we are gifted that story, but we inherit this family story that is messy and complicated and complex and it's full of events and people trying to deal with those events. And then we add to it add to that family story and it shapes it and it influences it. I don't want Janie's legacy to be the car accident. I don't want that to be the remembrance, but right now that's what I have. I don't have a lot of other stories that I can recall people sharing about her. And for me that is, it's just incredibly sad. I want to welcome our listeners to the Keep Kids Alive podcast. I'm Tom Everson. I'm the executive director and founder of Keep Kids Alive Drive 25. Uh, we're a nonprofit organization that targets traffic safety education. Our, our mission, simply put, is to help make streets safer for all who walk, cycle, play, drive, and ride. So that includes all of us. Today, our guest is uh, Vince Pusick. He's in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and I believe he has a fascinating story. I invited Vince to join us after uh, reading his essay that was published on Rougarou, which is the literary magazine for the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. It's a fascinating essay that I think uh, is engaging for all readers, and uh, hopefully I'll post that on our uh, Facebook page at some time so you can uh, go and, and read his essay. Welcome, Vince. Uh, I know you're an educator, uh, fly fisherman, uh, you're a writer. <laughs> Right. A mentor to many. And uh, I don't know if you want to add anything to that description. Uh, father of a 28-year-old daughter and stepfather to a 20-year-old and 18-year-old. Okay. And uh, I'm going to say a loving husband. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully a loved husband as well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, thank you for, for joining us. I always like to, to start out with letting our audience know kind of what our connection is in the first place. And uh, Vince and I both graduated in 1975 from uh, William Jackson Palmer High School in downtown Colorado Springs, Colorado. We didn't hang with the same crowd or anything in high school, but we may have been in a couple classes and probably sat across the room from each other. But so I was aware of Vince. We uh, later uh, became friends on Facebook and, you know, I learned of Vince's uh, passion for writing and have really appreciated uh, essays that he's written and reflections that he's uh, shared about his own family history. And so this particular essay uh, called Searching Through the Afterlife is what prompted our conversation. And so, you know, Vince, I'd like to invite you into the conversation by just allowing you to share your story uh, that triggered this opportunity to talk. Sure. Grew up in Colorado Springs and I was the 
fourth child, uh, actually fifth child born, as will uh, be revealed in the focus story here. Became an English major after working in a factory for about a year and a half after graduating from high school and decided that I believed in the power of stories. Actually, the importance of stories and being able to tell not only our personal stories, but just literary stories in general to gain clear understanding of our own human experience. So I guess it was several years ago I started to write about my relationship with my father. And I journaled about my father. I wrote poems about him. He basically left our family when I was 12 and didn't live in our household. So it was a strained kind of distant relationship. My journaling turned into poems, as I mentioned, and short stories. And he made a comment one time about family and work. And that comment when I was 17 really stimulated my thinking about, in some ways, the role of a male in masculinity. So it's really a father-son story. I've, I've been writing uh, a longer memoir uh, that looks at a father-son relationship, but also what does that mean in terms of the themes of family and work. So that's where I am today with my writing story. What particularly struck me in your essay was your story about your sister, Janie. And so I want to invite you to share that story and uh, how that story became part of your story. So my memoir is really a coming of age story. So I started writing uh, basically about growing up. In some ways, I call it a coming of consciousness story of where do we start to become aware of the world around us. My story began in Colorado Springs, but as I got exploring my family story, where do we say that a family story begins? searching through the afterlife. Through the darkness, we could see the red cherry of my mother's cigarette make the arc from her hip to her lips and back again. Her white uniform, formal and translucent, almost glowed. My older siblings, Phil and Deb, and I watched from the back bedroom as she turned from our driveway to walk the mile to Penrose Hospital, the Catholic hospital run by the nuns. She had to hurry. The Sisters of Charity awaited her arrival in their black and white habits. She in her white nurse's cap, dress, nylons, shoes. Angelic, self-sacrificing. She disappeared into the night toward the graveyard shift. In the mornings, for as long as I can remember, she sat across the kitchen table and told stories of her night at work while I ate breakfast and skimmed the morning paper. Peanuts and Dennis the Menace, then the baseball scores, Robert Kennedy's assassination, and later, Nixon's impeachment. One morning, she sat relieved. During the night, a steady stream of my high school friends flowed into the emergency room. Punch spiked with horse tranquilizer at a party. She watched for me each time the ER door slid open and the cold night air blew in. Another morning, she asked if I knew Tony Santos. I did. He just got out of six hours of emergency surgery on his spine, missed the turn on Fillmore Hill, rolled his car, 100 miles per hour, broke his back. What she didn't mention out loud, the fragility of life, lingered longer. There's an, a literary term called in medias race, which means in the middle of things. So in some ways, when we come into the world, 
we have a story preceding our coming into the world and uh, we're born in the middle of things. So uh, when I was 12 in the autumn of 1969, I found a box of family photos on the top shelf of my bedroom closet. And we had just moved into this house about a year before from my childhood home. And I guess my mother and my father put the box of uh, family photos in our closet and I shared the bedroom with my uh, older brother. And in that box, as I was just sorting through them and taking them out and I guess examining them, uh, studying them, there were two or three pictures of caskets at a cemetery and there were six caskets prepared for burial three very small caskets two little bit larger coffins and then an adult size casket well i'm 12 years old and that really like i hadn't seen anything like it i don't think i had experienced a death in the immediate family or anything like that in my life there were photos of people that i didn't know got in this box. And as I continued to dig through it, I found an old uh, newspaper, Colorado Springs Gazette. And then I found another one subsequently on the free press, which were the two morning papers at the time with the headline. It was dated November 27th, 1955. And the headline was something like six family members killed in a car train accident. So I read uh, the first article. There were two articles in the paper. One of them was a straight news story about this train car accident. And the other was a side article about the family. And I discovered that that family was my family. It was my uncle Steve who was involved in the car accident, train car accident, or my cousins, uh, three little girls named Cynthia, Suzanne, and Marilyn, and my other cousin, my Aunt Mary's son. Uh, named Eli, which was my father's name, but they called him Babe. And my sister, Jane, the car was hit by a train in eastern Colorado on the Saturday after Thanksgiving. So I was 12 years old, and I didn't know what to do with this information. I had heard the names mentioned, you know, at different holidays or different times of the year. They might say something like, Janie would have been 23 this year, or Babe would have been 18 this year. But I had never heard the story. I heard little fragments and pieces and little snippets of conversation, but it was not really talked about. Sometimes they would say the accident out in Matheson, which was the small town in eastern Colorado. So as I looked through those photographs in the newspaper article, uh, that's where I really discovered the story of my sister Janie's death and the five other family members. I didn't feel like it was a family secret. I didn't feel like it was something that people were keeping from me. I just felt like it was something that wasn't talked about. And at 12 years old, I didn't even know what to do with it. I didn't know how to, you know, do I bring it up or not bring it up? Or what do I do? It just seems like, you know, that accident had happened 14 years prior to that. I was born two years after the train car accident. And in some ways, I think at 12 years old, I thought maybe my family had just moved on from that, that that was in their life kind of, I don't know, I, you know, in retrospect, I don't think it's ever resolved or done with or something like that. But I just felt maybe at 12 years old, I don't know, in some ways, maybe it wasn't my place to bring up this story. So I put the box of photographs back together and the newspaper article back in it and slid it on the top of my closet shelf. I think of myself at 12 years old and, you know, what was I preoccupied with? 
you know, you know, going to school, having a paper route right. and just playing in the neighborhood, you know, shooting baskets after school or, yeah, or playing baseball. And we had our baseball heroes and, you know, I mean, maybe I thought about school work or things like that. It was in the, you know, the first quarter of uh, seventh grade had started. That's how old I was. So, yeah, there were all kinds of other things preoccupying. You know, one of the things that uh, just comes to mind in the moment is uh, the TV show, The Wonder Years, which was uh, actually set during our time in junior high and, and high school. And uh, just that word wonder, you know, what were you wondering about in that moment? And where did that wonder take you uh, in the year, the subsequent years in terms of your own thinking and maybe your conversations with your family? Can you share a little bit about that? Sure. And I, I would like to say, too, that. This is also, you know, very, the event and the situation and the discovering of this box, uh, that is about an emotional and maybe even an ethical discovery, you know? So at 12 years old, we are still, talk about the formative years, we're just at the beginning of that. And I'll talk about this a little bit in terms of that response, but a lot of my response is intellectual and uh, almost academic because the emotional aspects, I was a 12-year-old kid. I didn't know much about empathy, compassion, those sorts of things. In early adolescence, you know, we're kind of caught up in our own lives. Does that girl like me? Am I popular at school? Can I hit a fastball? You know, I mean, those kind of things. It isn't about discovering a family tragedy. So one of the things that I've discovered over you know, the last few years in writing about it, but also, I mean, so it was 52 years that I I found this box. So it has always sort of stayed with me in terms of a family event, both the accident itself and the discovery of the box. So those are two events that happened in my, in my life or in our family's life. And we all have different perspectives and different experiences coming into an event and the experiencing the event itself. And then after the event, so I was born 18 months after the tragedy happened. I never grieved a sister, the loss of my sister. I, you know, that, that loss had happened. I didn't have a separation from my sister. I was born into a family that experienced that event before I was a reality. I was a living person in it. So I didn't carry grief with me. In 1969, the same year that I found that box, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's book uh, called On Death and Dying was published. And that was one of the first real studies about the grieving process. There have been subsequent ones, subsequent study of grief. And one of those reveals that in that first year after a, a person's loss, you have to go through those anniversaries of Easter's and Christmas and the, the person's birthday. And I remember uh, as I was researching that, it said that when parents lose a child, the emotional impact is really a sense of numbing, that they feel numb for a long period of time. I don't know, you know, there's no timeline, there's no timeline for grieving. So I don't know where my parents were in their own grief. I think it's recursive. There's not like a marker that you can say, oh, now we're in the acceptance stage or now we're in bargaining. So in her book, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross says that kids around three years old don't understand death, but they understand separation. Well, on the same day as that car accident was my sister Deb's second birthday. 
Phil and Deb are with my mother in the kitchen. My mother prepares dinner to celebrate Deb's second birthday, this same day, as soon as Janie returned. My mother checks the clock throughout the afternoon, calculating the time she will hear the car door slam, and Janie will come through the back door, glad to be home, hungry for dinner, excited for her little sister's birthday cake. But it was getting late. Mom must have wondered where they were. My oldest brother, Steve, 13, not eight, as the newspaper reported, remembers the black car turning down our driveway. A woman, he doesn't remember who she was, maybe didn't even know them, emerged from the back of the car. Where is your mother? Janie's been killed. Unlike what the newspaper reported, he was aware. He knew. My oldest brother, Janie's big brother, remembers my mother's shriek. Not Janie, not my Janie. In her book, Kubler-Ross says adolescents need to be allowed to express their feelings. Quote, If we blame them for daring to ventilate their anger or guilt or sadness, we are blameworthy for prolonging their grief, shame, and guilt. End quote. Ventilate. Examine. Make known. Air. My brother is angry for a long time. Years later, he tells me the story, stoic as a cop, about how he was supposed to go with them that day, but stayed home. He doesn't say it, but he feels he should have protected her. Then, how the unknown woman showed up at the house. My mother screamed. He doesn't say it, but he feels he should have protected her, too. My discovery of empathy and compassion revolves around that fact, that every birthday that my sister has is marked by this anniversary of her older sister's death. And I think about what an emotional load and an emotional burden that that must have placed on my parents, especially my mother, of how do you celebrate the birth of one daughter and grieve and recognize uh, and mourn the loss of another daughter? It would seem to me that something would have to give. You couldn't fully emotionally invest in either one of them. I think that that was a devastating thing. Uh, One of my brothers was four years old, so I would put him in kind of that same category of experiencing an inexplicable separation. My oldest brother was 13 at the time of the accident, so he was Janie's big brother by two years. And in her book on death and dying, Kubler-Ross says that adolescents need a place to ventilate or they carry the shame and the grief and the guilt and the sadness with them. And I asked my brother, uh, Steve, who uh, was 13, about that loss. And he said, you know, we had no, we had no counseling. We didn't have an opportunity to meet with counselors. You know, there wasn't a thing like uh, the employee assistance programs that we have now. So I asked my mother when I was an adult, I was probably 28 or 30 years old, maybe even a little older than that. What did she do with the loss of Jamie? And my question really was, how did she deal with that grief? How did she carry that grief? And she said, "Uh, Vince, I went back to work. We didn't know what we know now. And I had to go back to work. And I just, I get filled with an incredible sadness at that. And I, in no way do I want to come across as some expert on grief. I'm just looking at my family and conversations that we had it made it incredibly difficult to ask my mother and father about that loss because, again, 
I didn't experience it. So I see it as a curiosity. I want to learn about my family history and family members. Well, this is a, you know, this is a devastating milestone event in a family's trajectory. And they lived it and experienced it. And I didn't want my curiosity or my questioning to create discomfort, to, you know, to take them back to a place that they might not have wanted to be. So I didn't ask a lot of questions. When I was 15, my dad and I were driving out to breakfast and it was, he worked the swing shift from four to midnight. So we went out to breakfast at 1230 in the morning or something like that. And when we were driving there, he slapped the steering wheel and he cursed. And he said, when Janie died, people said to him, she's in a much happier place now. And he said, why would they think that she wasn't happy here? Well, as a 15-year-old boy, I didn't know how to respond to that either. I couldn't console my father for his own grief, but I realized that he carried that grief for, at that point, 17 years then. And again, I think that that was an awakening of my own sense of powerlessness, my own sense of, uh, I don't know, how do you console somebody? But it started to plant this seed, I think, toward empathy and compassion, which I'm not always, it's not a natural default emotion or state of being for me to be. And especially again, as an adolescent, it was just a very difficult sort of experience. And again, I just really want to emphasize that we all carry our grief and our express our mourning very differently. I just think it's an individual experience. So anything that I say about my family members I definitely don't want it to sound as if it is questioning how or why or a judgment of how or why as a little kid, basically 12 year old young adolescent, it, this discovery and the exploration of it, uh, you know, the sort of wondering about the loss of my sister has just always been a curiosity of mine. Actually, I'm thinking many, many things as I, I listen to you. One, and you know, this is a quote that I've I've shared on a couple of other our podcasts because many of our guests have been family members who have suffered the loss of a loved one due to a traffic incident. And grief is all over the place in terms of, you know, the puzzle pieces that you'd have to put together to really have any kind of a semblance of a picture of grief you know, would be, uh, they'd be difficult to find, you know, let alone to, to, to piece together. But it's this, uh, this quote that our death-denying culture has life-denying consequences, you know, that when we don't have the opportunity or when the opportunity comes along to be able to, to talk about our real lived experience of, of grief uh, in our lives, that uh, somehow we're, we're missing an opportunity there. And uh, our, our culture and especially as you talk about the culture in the 50s and 60s and, you know, maybe even a little beyond that, that really didn't uh, encourage the sharing of stories and feelings and the guts of grief that come from those experiences. Stories have different storytellers as well. My, my family members all have different ways of talking about Janie's death. I don't think that any version devalues the other versions, but we need to be able to, there's an importance to, and I think that the comfort level in how much we tell or when we tell it is up to the individual. And I think that as I was 
beyond 12 years old and even into adulthood, I think that was always the line that I was tiptoeing up to was how do we engage in conversations with others who have had experienced the situation differently? I mean, it was a tragic event. And I think that willingness and that we have to pay attention to people's heart, that it's really has to be motivated and in some ways maybe initiated by them to tell the story. But it's just it's just an interesting, I don't know, I was going to say dilemma, but I don't think it's a dilemma. It's just an interesting dynamic of how do we interact with other people about family tragedies or family histories. They have to have a level of readiness and willingness and vulnerability to be able to talk about the experiences in their life and I think what I hope to do and want to do is really honor that vulnerable space in my siblings. And I try to with my parents as well. It's a, it's a really important, the validation that to me, you're really giving to each person's story and how they experience that. I think giving, uh, giving ourselves and other people the space to be able to have their experience and to tell their story. I don't know if it helps to fill in the gaps because I think the gaps maybe are there kind of quite naturally, but it helps to, you know, maybe looking at it as a painting in a way that uh, they each put their own, you know, touch of color or contrast into the the whole picture. Uh, one thing too about uh, filling in the gaps, I think that one of the things that I have struggled with, and I alluded to it a little bit in that in the essay that you were talking about, because we didn't talk a lot about Janie's life in general or in some ways, family history or family stories on a broader context, I attempt to um, fill in some of those gaps with speculation through questioning about sort of what if and imagining different scenarios or just different questions like that of details of her life. Well, it's difficult when people are reluctant or uh, a little bit reticent in sharing their perceptions or their experiences. And I have to be real conscious and aware that my speculation may or may not be their experience or their reality, especially in writing about the stories. So I try to be really clear that when I fill in some of these gaps or when I speculate on that, that it's just that it's a speculation and it's just wondering out loud and thinking out loud about Janie's life and about uh, the other family members and some of the emotions or the scene when people found out about a tragic car train accident. But speculation can also be, could tend to be, I think, insensitive that some people may say, well, it wasn't like that at all. And I think that as a writer or as someone who's trying to understand the significance of Janie's uh, death into my, into my life, uh, that's what memoirs do is they try to make meaning of events in their lives and uh, their life sort of in general. So what I'm considering my family life, I ask what if questions and I ponder, I speculate about the impact of grieving parents at the time that I was born. In some ways, memoirs, I think, are a little self-centered, a little subjective. They're trying to make meaning and understand their life. But I've tried to be respectful of the entire family as I've done that. It gets tricky because... When we talk about our life and our life experiences, it is a little bit of a tunnel vision. 
some of the questions we may be asking or some of the speculations that we have are subject to our own emotions, experiences, um, worldview that we have. So I think that when you mentioned about filling in the gaps, there's some complexity in that. In uh, conversations you've had with family members, you know, since you discovered the stories uh, or the actual experience of, uh, of Janie's death, and your cousins and your uncle as well, if they've ever been able to share stories about, you know, what was Janie like? What bright light did she bring into the world? You know, that, that is a great question, and it's a painful question because two people who would have known her the best in a lot of ways were my mother and father. And it was difficult to broach the subject with them. And I don't know the level of their willingness to talk about it. I felt like it was up to me to initiate those conversations, which I just wasn't in a mental and emotional place to do that. They had a reluctance, I think, to talk about it. Imagine walking into a room just after this news has left each family member raw, vulnerable, and uncertain of next steps. The emotion hangs in the air, the room filled with tension and tears, distance, and then silence. I was conceived 11 months after the accident out in Matheson. Where was my mother in her grieving, my father? The emotions are recursive, spiraling, relentless. What would Kubler-Ross say for the child delivered into the space 20 months after the shared sorrow, into an atmosphere still heavy with loss, my parents' hearts weighted with grief? It's not linear, grieving. 12 years later, I sat stunned by the story unfolding through the black and white photos and newspaper clippings. It didn't seem as if Janie's story was a family secret kept from the youngest child in the family. Eventually, an echo fades and no longer can be heard. Maybe I wasn't supposed to know this story. Two of my siblings were, like I mentioned, uh, two years old and four years old when the accident happened. So their memories of Janie are probably non-existent or uh, minimal. My older brother is more willing to talk about it and he's more... It's more of a surprise to me that he is uh, willing to talk about it. I think that he and I have reached a similar conclusion. And I don't want Janie's legacy to be the car accident. I don't want that to be the remembrance. But right now, that's what I have. I don't have a lot of other stories. I don't have any other stories that I can recall people sharing about her. And for me, that is... It's just incredibly sad. I mean, I think my family was so devastated by the loss of six family members that we might not have, as a family collectively, recognized the gift of of their lives. And Janie specifically, I don't know. I don't know if we we have expressed that. You know, I think that one of the greatest inheritances we have is our family story. We are given that. We are gifted that story. And there are 
glorious things to be celebrated in a family story and a family's history. And there are tragedies that people have persevered and they might be unspeakable tragedies like Janie's death. But we inherit this family story that is messy and complicated and complex and it's full of events and people trying to deal with those events. And then we add to it, our lives add to that family story and it shapes it and it influences it. And then our story becomes a legacy. I'm passing on family story and a family history to my daughter and with whatever, whatever influence I may have had on, on our family story. And my greatest sorrow right now is that I don't know more of Janie's life. My brother Steve has said that she was one of the best like and kind at school and one of the kindest kids at school. I think my sister Deb has seen her as a major like caregiver. She was same sex older sibling. And I think there was a bond there. So if I were told any stories by about uh, Jamie, I think I would remember him. I mean, that's kind of the mind I have. I don't, I don't have those to call on. And like I said, I just think that is a great sorrow that I, I have right now. Well, remind me, who were they going to see when uh, they were going out to Matheson? Okay, so my Uncle Steve and Babe, Jamie, and one of Uncle Steve's other daughters, so four people were in the car, they went out to their maternal grandfather. So uh, Steve's wife's father lived on the Eastern Plains as a farmer. It was the Saturday after Thanksgiving. The two little girls had gone out to be with him or be with their family on Thanksgiving or maybe on the Friday after Thanksgiving. And they were heading out there to pick them up and then return to Colorado Springs. And it was on the return trip that the car uh, was hit by the train. I was just thinking about your your uncle, Steve, that, you know, think about this in terms of, well, how many uncles would uh, corral five kids? together right you know to go out and see grandpa and you know take the time to do that because uh you know to me i mean the first word that comes to mind there's a there's a generosity just in that action of doing that because uh you know if we've ever been around five young kids all at one time and in the car and but have been peaceful could have been mayhem (laughs) but uh, you know but it was a very generous act on his part Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because that is the family culture environment dynamics that I've sort of discovered is very loving and generous. And I mean, close knit family. My father lived within a quarter of a mile of his three other siblings at the north end of Colorado Springs. My grandfather, Nick, was a coal miner and they finally took root in Colorado Springs four very modest, small homes, all within a quarter mile of each other. You know, it was a very close-knit and loving family. And so to the point of this tragedy, it had all the earmarks of a success story by an immigrant coal miner whose family now had established roots in Colorado Springs and were living a very, you know, loving, close family story. And again, that's why I'm glad you mentioned that about Uncle Steve, because I don't want the legacy to be that accident. It's a huge, devastating event, and I'm no way diminishing that. 
but they brought a lot to the family. They have a story that is more than that, I think. Uh, yeah, I was feeling a little connected there uh, with your grandfather being a coal miner, because I grew up in Cragmore, which, right. was, which was built over <laughs> abandoned coal mines right. <laughs> and all. And so, you know, I, I just see the, you know, the connection and, you know, of people that you never met, that you never thought about, you know, but, you know, had some connection with the space that, you know, in my case, that my family occupied uh, in our home, you know, up in that area of Colorado Springs. Well, my grandfather worked uh, for a brief time in that in the Pikeview Mine, which was uh, probably a little bit west of Cragmore, but part of that shade of coal mines. So, yeah, there's rich history there. What do you feel like you've learned about yourself from this experience? Because uh, I think about, you know, one of the things I was thinking about when uh, you were talking about taking that box off the, the shelf in the closet and discovering the photos of the coffins and, and the newspaper articles underneath. You know, one of the things that crossed my mind is that, you know, finding that box was almost like opening a coffin in and of itself and letting the stories to come out, you know, just from, from that box. And right. all, and so uh, anyway, that may be neither here nor there, but it was just a, a thought that I had just about, about the gift of that box. I don't know if this is the right metaphor. It's a double-edged gift. I can picture in my mind today having that box out, sitting uh, cross-legged on the bedroom floor. My brother had just left for college. Uh, sometimes I think maybe I was just a bored 12 year old who pulled that box down and started sifting through it. And it changed my perception of my family and the reality of uh, my understanding of the family. Again, it was sort of because I didn't have the emotional experience of that, that loss. It became an intellectual mind, uh, mindful pursuit, uh, to, to try and understand her life. And I think sometimes, you know, you started by asking, what have I learned about myself? I've always had a curiosity about my family. And I think that sometimes the questioning can almost appear not empathetic or not compassionate out of the curiosity because the emotional load was carried by others more than me. I think that this exploration has actually in the kind of diving deeply into this has enabled my compassion and empathy to grow. Uh, in writing that story and in writing that memoir, uh, there were times I, I was completely drained and tearful, you know, shedding tears in considering other people's perspectives. And you can't always break away from a subjective experience into a neutral objective view. Uh, but one of the things that I think it enabled me to do and maybe I learned about myself is considering those other perspectives. And I mean, walking in another person's shoes doesn't fit here because it's just impossible to uh, carry that emotional, uh, emotional load if I'm in another person's shoes, but it at least opened the door for me to get to that place of compassion and empathy uh, for a loss that I didn't share. I think that I had effects. I think I was born into a post-traumatic situation, but I didn't share the loss itself. 
my siblings have, and I have have to be very careful that my curiosity and questioning and intellectual interest does not create like a emotional chaos for them or discomfort. So I'm hopefully respectful of their own boundaries around the issue. I don't even like using the word the issue or the event. I mean, that makes it sound so sort of devoid of, of emotion too. So I don't even know if I have the precise language to talk about Janie's death in a lot of ways. Grief is a noun. Our loss inevitably hands us grief. We possess it. It is intimate to each of us. Because their relationship to Janie was individual, so was her death, the loss, unique to them. And to my brothers and sister, my father carried his grief differently than my mother bore hers. Grieve, the verb, comes from the Latin gravare, meaning to burden, and extends from an adjective, gravis, meaning heavy or grave. When I asked my mother what she did after Janie died, I wanted to know how she grieved, what she did with this immense loss, impossible to carry on one's own. Today, we tend to lean into a celebration of life after a person passes. The celebration is public, honors the deceased, provides a send-off into the next world, says to the afterlife, here is the beauty you are to receive. Grieving the loss, immersing into the sorrow, is necessary, more private, for those who remain here. Our hearts broken open to the fragility of life, our feet heavy on the earth because of the gravity of the loss. We carry it, our grief, sometimes not even aware of the weight. In discovering Janie, I inherited a grief from a loss that I didn't directly experience, and of course never grieved. I didn't know what to do with either the discovery of the photos or the impact of the newspaper articles. I layered them back in the box and slid the box onto the shelf at the top of the closet. I feel like I can identify with you on, on some level that way. When our oldest son uh, was born, well, he was in utero, and we went on an adventure to uh, Minnesota because my grandfather had a lake named after him, and nobody had ever been to it. And so we, we went to discover the lake, and we had to portage through two lakes to get to his lake. It was quite an adventure. That lake is, it's called Tom Kelly Lake, and it's very sacred space as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, on our way back, the only family reunion my family ever had when I was growing up was for my grandparents' 50th uh, wedding anniversary in a town called Lake Mills, Wisconsin. That was the only time I think I saw all my cousins together or anything like that. But we were coming down I-94, and there's Lake Mills. It's like, I got to go find that farmhouse that they lived in. And uh, I have no idea how I remembered back to eighth grade. And because <laughs> I, I had all I'm doing is following country roads and thinking, well, I think it's this one, this one. But we found it. But the woman who owned the farmhouse, a woman named Ellen White, she wasn't there when we got there. And I was taking Wendy, my wife, around the property because my grandfather was a great conservationist and he had built bird houses and, and bird baths and all this. And they were still there. It was incredible. But uh, she pulls up, Alan does, and I end up reintroducing myself. She's, you know, fortunately didn't have a shotgun and trying to chase me off her property. But uh, we sat on her porch and talked. 
And one of the things that she shared was that my grandmother was an alcoholic. I think we all knew that. We didn't talk about it, but we knew that. And Ellen was saying what wonderful people my grandparents were, except when my grandmother was drinking. I mean, it confirmed for me something that I knew, but I came, when I got back home, we lived in Houston at the time, I wrote my mom a letter about the trip. And I told her about, you know, visiting with Ellen White and what she had to share and everything. And I thought this was important, you know, because it was like this part of the family story, but my mom did not respond well. <laughs> you know, it, was, it was like the whole trip had been to go find Ellen White and, uh, you know, dig up dirt on the family. And, you know, when you talk about being sensitive to how other people might respond, and honestly, at that point in my life, I could not have projected that onto my mom, that that's how she would respond and everything. But, you know, in her own journey, and, and she grew up in that household. You know, so I have no idea what it was like to grow up in that household. And so, uh, you know, sometimes the truths or the information that we uncover, you know, about ourselves and our family history, uh, in some way, shape or form, we might be ready to, to deal with it. But that doesn't mean that everybody else is going to embrace it and go, gosh, glad you found that out or glad you're thinking about it or glad you're asking me this question. Right. I think we have to be aware of that different places of, you know, and, and uh, being respectful of uh, people's readiness or willingness or whatever to talk about. Because like you said, uh, you didn't know your mother's experience growing up in that household. Uh, I just think that people reach a, a willingness to be vulnerable and share at different rates and different paces. And whatever I say to siblings or others isn't going to speed up that vulnerability, you know, or that willingness to be uh, vulnerable. I think uh, I think it speaks because I love the word vulnerable, and I'm going to have to go back and look up the uh, the word. <laughs> I suppose it's a Latin word, you know. So the Latin word roots of vulnerable, because I think that uh, when anybody's in it is vulnerable around me, that to me that's a sacred space in and of itself. I mean, it's a privilege to be in that space and to simply listen. Right. You know, not necessary to comment, not necessary to make a judgment, you know, but simply to realize that it really is a, uh, a gift and a grace to be able to experience the vulnerability of another human being. And, right. uh, and certainly these tragedies that um, have visited so many families, yours included, that have to do with, uh, with traffic deaths. You know, there's a vulnerability in the moment of experiencing that, but that vulnerability doesn't necessarily go away over time in terms of being able to share that uh, experience. Right. You know, that's one of the reasons why uh, our listeners, uh, many of you may know that we uh, do these Pikes Peak weekends uh, every year where we have a running team that we call the Live Forward running team that uh, runs the Pikes Peak Ascent Trail Race. And we invite families out from all over the country to join us. And this year we have 15 families that are going to join us. And I'm glad that Vince and his family will have the opportunity to join us uh, as well. What, one of the things that makes the weekend so special is that one is there's nothing predictive based on one weekend from the past to what will happen in the, to a weekend in the future. Because, you know, every family, uh, every person, you know, brings their own uh, story and their own experience of their story. But I always say that one of the reasons why we bring families together is to come to a beautiful place to share stories and make memories. And if that happens within the context of a weekend, 
nobody knows what stories they're going to share. Nobody's telling anybody what story to share, but it kind of happens quite naturally in being in that space. And, you know, from the uh, feedback from families that have uh, gathered in the past, you know, one of the graces of this is just being able to be with people they don't really need to share their story with because everybody knows why they're there and all, but all, but just because of that, it kind of opens up the space and all that. uh, It's not like I'm the only one in the room that ever had this happen to them. So for me, that's important just for any of us as human beings is that no matter what we've experienced and what we feel that uh, whatever room we're in, we're probably not the only person in the room who's had that experience. Right. Well, I think that that is a great opportunity. I was going to say service. I, it is a service that you're providing people in that of bringing people together. I think there's a value in learning our own family histories for ourselves. And I think that it's important for us to know sort of that collective journey that our family has made. But in these devastating events, what you provide is what we need, an opportunity to support each other, be heard without in some ways even having to speak a word that we know that we share a common experience. One of the things that I really think is important is the perseverance that my mother, my father, and my siblings you know, have and had. I mean, I just think that there are opportunities to heal And I think that what you provide is part of that healing process. I think opening up that space so that people can come there and really feel that they're not alone. They don't even have to share a word, but they can feel a sense of belonging. Even though the experiences may be different, there are similarities when you bring people together like that. And I think there's a great comfort in what you're offering people. You know, one of the things that struck me in your essay is just uh, in the, uh, it was editorializing, it sounds like on the part of the reporter about your mom, about how she would respond to this, you know, as a mother would be expected to do. And if, could you comment on that? Sure. There are two things that have always stood out from that article. Uh, One of them is most of the family was at another house and consoling each other and One of the things the reporter said is that my father was comforting others, endeavoring to forget his own loss. And I think that both of those things are impossible. He was never going to forget that loss. He lost a brother, four nephews or nieces, and his daughter. There was not going to be forgetting that loss. And the other thing that struck me uh, about my father in that line was uh, comforting others. I don't think that he could simultaneously comfort others when they all had just experienced the exact same loss or the same loss of those family members. You couldn't be able to do that. You couldn't console others when you were in that grief as well. So that always struck me as a strange comment in there. And then the other one was my mother was at home with uh, my three siblings and the, the line is carrying on as a mother should. To me, that that's strikes me as an insensitive comment and a little bit very journalistic in some ways of uh, a reporter creating some distance from the event. My mother would never carry on as a mother should, I don't think. She had just lost her 
uh, second born child, her oldest daughter. And that was going to be a profound impact uh, from that day forward. So I think that, you know, in terms of final thoughts connected to that is we need to give, and this is probably just a statement for everybody. Uh, We need to give each other more grace than we often do. We don't know. And I don't know how that grief and that mourning manifests itself in my siblings. I have probably stepped on toes and overstepped my boundaries in some ways in talking with them. We can never know the intent of a question or the intent of a piece of writing. What I want to try and do is memorialize my family and Janie's in particular, although all the, all the people are accident again, beyond the tragedy being their legacy. It's really hard to do now because people who know their stories more fully are not here. My uh, oldest brother is. He's a little reticent to talk about things. So I think in answer to uh, your question about that uh, article and the final thoughts is I think we need to come to each other with grace and compassion and empathy. I think that I in particular need to be very mindful of my curiosity may not be aligned with somebody else's willingness to talk about things. And I think it's through that love and grace that we can bring to each other and respect that uh, we are able to persevere and that we are able to, I think, just uh, love each other. That's a good uh, punctuation, Mark, uh, I think, in, in terms of loving each other. You know, because I'm, I'm reminded myself, uh, back in the early 80s, I, I taught at a uh, small Catholic high school in St. Louis, and I inherited the course that was called Death and Dying. I renamed it Death, Suffering, and Healing. That was helpful because of a college professor I had. But, you know, one of the things that I learned, and, you know, here I was in my you know early to mid-20s, but and still to this day, reminds me the importance of presence. If we would simply just be present to people just as a, a human body, you know, to be with them and to listen to them. And, you know, if we consider it suffering their tears or moans and groans, then we'll consider it so and just absorb that because that's a role that, that uh, somebody can play in just standing with and next to somebody. But I also reminded too that when I go to funerals these days, uh, I'll ask this of kids, I'll ask this of brothers, sisters, whoever whatever the relationship might be with the the person who died is to, you know, do you have a favorite story to just invite them to do that? Now, everybody's not ready to share a favorite story, but just inviting them to focus on something special and their relationship with that person and all, because to me, that has value not only in the moment, but it will always have value. Right. I agree. I really appreciate the fact that we've been able to have this conversation, Vince, and I'm grateful for your essay that that prompted this opportunity in the first place. Uh, I think that your writing is an incredible gift, and I think that to me, your own vulnerability, not only in this conversation, but uh, through your writing, is a gift, you know, hopefully to you and to your family, but it's a gift to a lot of us. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Please visit kkad25.org to find out how you can support Keep Kids Alive Drive 25. And get involved by following on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Remember, 
It's about kids. It's about safety. It's about caring. It's about time. Thank you.